Happy New Year. Let's go before God in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that we gather around your word. We thank you that you come by means of your Holy Spirit speaking from the pages of Scripture. We can depend on the absolute truthfulness of everything that you say. But we need more than truthfulness. We need resurrection. So I ask you by your spirit today to be more than informative. That you would breathe into us your very self. That you would give new life. That you would make all things new. In Jesus' name, amen. I actually expected to be here last Sunday, but Abigail took her time. So I'm here this Sunday, which is close enough to New Year's to call it Happy New Year. It's close enough. We're in a time of New Year, new things. It is a new year, and more importantly, we've got one, excuse me, excuse me make that two new lives among us. Our dear pastor and his even dearer wife have welcomed into the world their firstborn daughter, Abigail Joy Rhodes. And now we find out that Mary and Garrett are going to be delivering yet another one. Uh, Do we have any other candidates here? (laughs) Anything I need to know? Be fruitful and multiply. Like all of you, I look forward to watching this beautiful young woman grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I look forward to seeing the truths of the gospel take root in her heart. I look forward to the bloom of new graces and new mercies in her life as she's loved and guided and cherished both by her parents and by everyone else in this room. Her arrival at the beginning of a new year fills my heart with hope. As all the promises of the gospel find a new field in which to grow. New year, new life, new hope. So it made sense to me to title my sermon, New, and to call your attention to the God who makes all things new. Our text this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It's about a new creation. All this newness reminds me that as members of the body of Christ, we are new creatures, new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Our text opens with a condition, that word if. If what? Being in Christ. The phrase in Christ is scattered across Paul's writings like cayenne pepper in a Louisiana gumbo. It is everywhere. And it refers to the believer's union with his Savior. What's that doctrine Neil never ever gets away from? Come on, what is it? Union with Christ. It's everywhere. It's on every page. It's certainly in his phrase, in Christ. It refers to the believer's union with Christ, which is the core of Paul's message, not to mention everybody else's in Scripture. The Christian faith has beliefs, but it is more than beliefs. 
Men who were once dead, men who were alienated and at enmity with God, are now renewed and embraced into the being of God. Let that hit you. Made part of the being of God. I don't understand that. We're in a position where the Father can't even see us except by looking at his Son. Got news for you. If God the Father Almighty is going to look at me, I want him looking through the glasses of Jesus. I do not want him looking at me without a covering. I want Jesus to be that covering that conceals my sin, the sin that's been destroyed at the cross. Vine and branches, husband and wife, body and members, these are the pictures that Scripture uses to describe this relationship between Christ and his redeemed. Now in this text, Paul calls the result of this union a new new creature, or in some translations, a new creation. You will be tempted to read that and say, okay, now that I'm a Christian, my behavior is going to change. That's true, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about something far more profound than a moral reformation or the change of a few ideas. New creation is an invasion of the space-time world. New creation is a tear in the fabric of temporal, physical reality through which the eternal world pours like a flood. That's what's going on here. God is bursting in to the temporal world through us. The rule and reign of the unchanging, beginningless God rips into the fallen world, conquering and to conquer, bringing new mercies, new songs, new names, new identities, new covenants, new commandments, new motives, new appetites, new desires, new priorities, new ways of thinking and being and living and dying. It's not a mere change in behavior. It's a new definition of what it means to live. Elsewhere, Paul puts it this way, Ephesians 4.24, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Men who were created, born into the legacy of the fall, have the clothing of the fall ripped from them. And now they are recreated into the legacy of the image of God in which they were originally created. It's a revival and a renewal of the divine image that was so deeply marred in the fall. Look at Colossians 3.10. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The beginnings of the restoration of Eden. His pattern of renewal under the name new creation promises a series of results that should send us into the presence of God rejoicing. Here are some, just a few, you wouldn't believe what I had to leave out. Just a few of the blessings of new creation that fill this new life with joy unspeakable and full of glory. First, 
And I, I had to keep this one because Brian's been taking us through the new songs of the Psalter. We have a new song. Now understand what the Bible means by a song. We think of a song as four minutes and 37 seconds of entertainment. That's not what the Bible is talking about when it uses the word song. It's a declaration of identity. It's a declaration of unity. This is who I am. This is who we are. A long time ago, before the earth's crust cooled, I went to high school. And I was in the band. I have the honor of being the worst tuba player in the history of brass. When I was in high school, we had a truly delightful man named Claude Andrews, who was the band director. He came to Ash under very difficult circumstances, and one of his accomplishments was to write an alma mater for Alexandria Senior High School. I love Claude Andrews. He's one of the dearest men I have ever met in my life. He will never be mistaken for Beethoven. And his poetry in that song is very, very far from Miltonic. But that silly, absurd song, which he made us all memorize, I'll ask at a distance of 43 years, I don't remember it, but he made us memorize that song, and it brought us together. It was a declaration of identity. We are these people. Our loyalty is to this high school. We cheer for this, alas, not particularly successful football team. It was a song that defined what it meant to go to that school. In the same way, God gives us a new song that brings us together. We sing together as a congregation. Even a soloist is not just up there to entertain you or impress you. He's calling the people of God to join him in their hearts in the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs of the faith as they all call the body together and unite us in the truth. So the gospel creates a new song among us, a defining joy that constitutes us as a people in whom God dwells. The song, where else could it come from, has to come from God. Psalm 40, verse 3. And he, God, hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear, and shall trust in the Lord. Psalm 40 is calling the people of God together with the song that God has given them. And what the song reveals is the praises of God. Now, what does it mean to praise God? There's a subtle difference between praise and thanksgiving. It's not just something you're happy about. When you thank God, you have received something. Or something good has happened to you. And you're expressing gratitude for what God has been to you in a given circumstance. That's something we're all required to do. There's a moral obligation to do that, but praise is different. In praise, rather than thanking God for what he has been to you, you are describing God as he is in himself, as if you never existed. Who is God in himself? And we lift up his attributes. We lift up his achievements, his accomplishments. We lift up his doings. But we lift up his being and we rejoice in who God is, whether or not he is any of that to us. 
God becomes absolutely primary. He becomes the absolute center and focus of attention in our praise. And he reveals himself to us so that we see his attributes and we rejoice that he is who he is. Then we can rejoice that he is who he is to us. We rejoice primarily in that he is who he is to himself, within himself. It is no accident that that is his name. I am that I am. The song that God gives us brings a world together in worship. Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord who? All the earth. Everyone is called to sing to God. Everyone is called to take up this song. Everyone is called to rejoice and delight in who God is in himself and who God is for us. Indeed, the song celebrates this miraculous saving work of God. Psalm 98, going to God's doings. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him the victory. This is a God who acts. Indeed, the great medieval theologians often referred to God as pure act. Pure act. This is the God who acts. They also refer to him as pure thought thinking itself. That's a little more abstract. But we can more, more easily identify with a being who is pure act toward us, who is pure act in himself, the God who does. How much difference does it make when you are on your knees in prayer, when you're lifting up the songs of the scriptures in joy before God, how much difference does it make to know that he is not a philosophical con- concept imprisoned in a book on a neglected shelf under ever-increasing gathering dust. But he is one who does. He is one who acts. He is one who initiates. He is one who responds. And whatever need you may have in your heart, he is an infinite number of steps ahead. Is that something to sing about? The song celebrates the vindicative justice of Christ the King. We are to be vindicated. What does that word mean? It means that coming out of a world where many of us have been downtrodden and maligned, have been set at naught and ignored, have been forgotten about or ridiculed, God holds us up and says, these are mine He proclaims reconciling grace before the gathered universe at the end of history. This is future to us, but God already lives in this reality. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. He opens what book? The book of life. The book of life is a bit short on plot, but it's got a ton of characters. It's name after name after name after name of people who were thought nothing by the world. Of people who were ignored, reviled, maligned, slandered, libeled, and downtrodden by the wicked ruling world. And now, 
These people who were thought, you and me, who were thought to be nothing by the world who thought it was so important. There in front of that audience of angels, demons, and men, to which I will refer again, there in front of God and Satan, there in front of the whole universe, you are held up. You are vindicated. This one is mine. This one wears my clothes. This one bears my name. And that's the next newness that we have from God. We have a new name. Again, we have to go back to biblical categories. For us, a name is a noise we make when we want somebody to come to us. That's not how a name works in Scripture. Names, again, convey words and ideas of identity. Biblical names define. Biblical names create realities. They identify. They prophesy. They promise. They describe. And Christ has renamed his fallen, ruined creatures, raising them up with his own resurrection, exchanging his life for their death, exchanging his death for their life, identifying with him, taking upon himself the name God with us. And as he takes that name upon himself and then unites us with himself in that mysterious, mystical union that we don't understand, our union with Christ, God with us makes us with God. And we have a completely new identity a new name, identified with the Son of God and again vindicated before the whole world, before the whole universe. Isaiah 62, 2. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness. What, my righteousness? Yeah, your righteousness. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness. All the kings shall see your glory. My glory? Yeah, your glory. And you shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. When God gives you a name, it sticks. That's reality. A new God-breathed reality emerges from his power and from his wisdom and from his love and stamps itself, the Greek word is character, stamps itself into your soul, into your mind, redefines you. That's what it means to be brought to in Christ and to be made new. Vindicated, welcomed into the eternal presence of God, again before angels, demons, and men. Revelation, chapter 3, verse 12. Him that overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. The word means vision of peace. Which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. What does it mean when you write your name on your lunchbox? It means don't eat what's in there, it's mine. You write your name on things. And declare your possession, your ownership of those things. God's name is on you. What does that mean? 
What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. God has written his name on you. I'm going to guess that's big letters. I'm thinking red ink, bold face, italics, 72 point type. Not to be missed. A new name is a new identity. And how could you have that without a new heart? This act of new creation reaches into the deepest part of who we were, of who we are, of who we become. The heart, the core of us, is where the renewing work of the Spirit occurs. We receive a heart that brings us together as a body. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. And I will give them one heart. What does that mean? I will give them. That's a plural. That's more than one person. I will give them one heart. We as a body of Christ share one heart. Remember the rule. If I am united to Christ, and if you are united to Christ, what necessarily follows? We are united to each other. And the way the prophet expresses that is, you and I have the same heart. A heart for God given to us by a divine surgical procedure. And I will give them one heart. And I will put a new spirit. Guess who that is? I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take the stony heart out of their flesh. And I will give them a heart of flesh. A heart that is dead to God. A heart that is indisposed, indifferent, and unable to move. Is ripped out. And replaced with a living heart. A heart that is alive toward God. A heart that is filled with desire toward God. And because of it, the placement of that heart in the body, by the body of Christ, it's a heart we have for each other. A heart whereby we live into each other's lives and cherish each other. What happens to Abigail as she grows up what happens to Garrett and Mary's child as, as he or she grows up is our business. We're to live into each other and cherish each other and guide each other and warn each other and hug each other and weep over each other and laugh with each other because we have one heart. What kind of heart? We receive a heart that sets, up, sets us apart from the world and places us into the saving purposes of God. Ezekiel again, chapter 36, verse 26. A new heart also will I give you. It's a plural you, it's everybody. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you, again, a heart that lives, a heart of flesh, a heart awake, alive and aligned with who God is, not just out there to be spectated upon, but in here to be participated in. That's the reality of a new heart. That's the reality that goes by the biblical name, regeneration. Regeneration happens to each, and regeneration happens to all. 
It is a reality that each one of us undergoes by the power of God, bringing us into the covenant, bringing us into the kingdom, making us one with Christ. But it is also a reality that is shared. That as a regenerate body, we are drawn into each other's life. I did not say lives. And we share that living condition together. And we act together. And we love together. That will always be imperfect here. But semper reformanda, always reforming. We are always pressing on toward that goal. No matter how elusive or distant it may seem, we are called to pursue it to the last drop of blood and the last breath of air. Why? Because we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. God, in Christ's redeeming work, is creating a new reality where the fall no longer reigns, where the prince of the power of the air has been dethroned. Isaiah speaks again, 65, 17, For behold, I create, God speaking, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. No, we're not just changing a few things around. We're dealing with an entirely new, rea- entirely new reality, a new way to exist. In this new reality, all of our hopes find substance, find permanence, forever out of the reach of the enemies of our souls. A few verses down, Isaiah 66, 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Anybody want to venture a guess as to how long the new heavens and the new earth are going to exist? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, not briefly. He is breaking in to this ephemeral passing world on the feet of eternity and bringing with him a new heaven and a new earth which has already begun to exist in the new heart that he has given you. It has already begun to display its light in the new mind that he has given you. It has already begun to emerge from hiding in this apocalyptic display of the face of God in what he makes of us. That's what's going on in the acts of redemption. That's why Watson said, Thomas Watson, the 17th century Puritan, I've used this before, creation is the work of God's fingers. Redemption is the work of his arm. And this new creation puts to shame all of those titanic galactic filaments that spread out across the billions of light years and yawn incomprehensibly into infinitude. It is fine dust on the scales compared to the new creation that's going on in us. That's going on for us in which an eternal world breaks the bonds of ephemeral limited space-time And explodes everything it ever has been to be man. No more are we to be at the mercy of a merciless evil. 2 Peter 2, 
make that three, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, how reliable is that? According to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. A world that is just. I, I don't even know what that would look like. I can't even imagine that. And yet the, the seeds of that reality are already at work within us, already sprouting, already showing the beginnings of their fruit. What will it be to live in a world completely dominated by righteousness, justice, holiness, goodness, and truth? All the things that buffet and batter us are destined for the burning a new reality awaits us, already prepared, already beginning its descent into our fallen world. Revelation 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. You'll be tempted when reading Revelation just to skip over that. Okay, no more sea, no big deal. That's a big deal. That's a really, really big deal. No more sea. In the pagan theology of biblical times, the sea was chaos. The sea was a nameless, faceless, uncontrollable entity that even the gods feared. They couldn't control it. They couldn't do anything with it. The sea stood for the idea that reality was fundamentally incomprehensible and fundamentally hostile. The sea was a cosmic enforcement of human helplessness. Our redeeming Christ puts that spirit to flight. He is in effortless control of all that the pagan gods, let alone pagan people, fear. In his new world, there is absolutely nothing that challenges his sovereign rule. Nothing gets in the way. Nothing impedes his flow of kindness to us. There is no sea. There is no molecule, no atom, no subatomic particle out from under his second by second rule. And in that power, he is making us holy and beautiful, adorned with his very character, united to him as one flesh. Revelation again, 21.2. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. June 8th, 1985. I was standing right there at the front of the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. And my best man, Steve McClellan, was standing right next to me. And the door at the bank of the sanctuary opened up. Ethereal light came pouring down the aisle. A breathtaking vista appeared and began floating as if on a cloud toward me. <laughs> and my dear friend and college roommate Steve McClellan looked at my wife-to-be and said, very loudly, wow. (laughs) 
I'll just let that hang there for a minute. (laughs) All of these things and many more that I did not mention are in daily operation in the people of God. They are miraculous, but that does not mean that they are not normal. Some of them are seen, some unseen. Some of them are present, some are future. Some are complete, some continue to grow, or perhaps in fade. This is the life to which you have been called. You are a new creation, an invading force from heaven. You, you have a new song, a theme of joy and victory in Christ. You have a new name set apart unto God. You wait for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And as you wait, you rejoice in the constant stream of kindnesses, seen and unseen, delivered and promised, streams of mercy never ceasing, still waters beside which he leads us, a calm current of deliverance and vindication into which your Jesus calls you to plunge and swim with delight. The essence of God in which you now live and move and have your being. The prophet Jeremiah was having a bad day. His nation was being driven into exile. He was being reviled as an enemy collaborator because he predicted the Babylonians were going to win. And in the midst of that anguish, the weeping prophet pours out five chapters of pleading agony and anguish that we call the book of Lamentations, and it was well-named Lamentations. But right in the middle of that book, with tears and tragedy on every side, the Holy Spirit inspired Jeremiah to write these words. Lamentations 3, verse 22. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I wanted to bring this sermon to a close and I called an audible with Bud up there by singing that verse right quick. And if Bud will put it on the screen, you'll be able to sing it with me. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord our God, you have promised that you make all things new. And you are faithful. We stand in this ever-flowing stream of new mercies every morning. And we plead with you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to appreciate all that you are doing and making in your renewing work. Lead us again in a spirit of worship and delight before a reconciling, vindicating, sovereign throne. In Jesus' name.
Amen.